Jesus said in Matthew 24, No one knows the day or the hour of my coming. The angels in heaven don't know it. The Son Himself doesn't know it. But yet you need to be on guard because you never know when the Lord will come. These words seem pretty clear enough for us, but oftentimes people disregard them and throughout history have tried to predict when the Lord Jesus will come back. The churches of northeastern America in the 1800s were growing rapidly. Matter of fact, they would experience throughout those times revival after revival after revival in their churches. These new Christians had really little theological education, and yet many of them began to discuss the topic of biblical prophecy or eschatology, which is the study of the last things or the end of time. Speculation boiled over when that exact day would be, what year it would come, that Christ would return. And of among all the speculators at that time, there was a man named William Miller of New York City. Miller was a new convert, and he began to, in his early infancy as a believer, tear into the prophecies of Daniel, and and in 1818 concluded from his study of Scripture that Christ would come in 1843 or 1844. When he later began preaching to masses, this became a keynote of his messages, and his listeners, finding him earnest, eloquent, and sincere, multiplied under his teaching. He finally announced that Christ would return to earth on October 22, 1844. And that date continued to change. The financial panic of 1839 contributed to the belief that the end of the world was approaching. Enthusiasm for Christ's return became so great that prophetic charts were actually added alongside the stock market figures of that day. Miller's teaching swept through New England and large numbers of converts espoused Millerism. And the day, the awaited day that he predicted came, journal, journalism had a field day with this reported date. Some reported that disciples were on top of the mountaintops hoping for a head start uh, before uh, others. Others were in graveyards planning to ascend in union with their departed loved ones. Some high society ladies even clustered together outside of town to avoid entering God's holy kingdom and, amid, uh, and being among the common herd. While April 4th dawned as usual, the Millerites were disillusioned, but they took heart because the leader, their leader, Mr. Miller, had changed his predicted date. And so it goes, and that event is known as, in history as the Great Disappointment. Now we all know that in history, from that time on, we have continued to see the herald campings of the world, the, um, the, you know, the Mr. Millers of the world, the, the others of the world that, that have come to say, I know by these numbers and by these figures and by this scripture that this is when the end of the world will come. 
And folks, we, we have to come to the realization that we are not going to know for sure. That's right. We're just not going to know. And so the question that people have is if we are not going to know exact times and dates, then why does God give us these eschatological portions of Scripture? Why did Jesus speak on the second coming uh, consistently to His disciples? Why should we have any expectation of those future events? And I think the answer to that is the point that Paul has tried to make all throughout 1 Thessalonians, and it's the theme of hope. Because in the truth of the future, in the promised future, we have hope for today. So we look forward to those days with expectation and with hope. We look at it because we no longer have to be people who fear death in the world. No longer do we have to be afraid to die. We can look at the life of Jesus Christ as we learned last week and no longer fear the death that comes. And we can tell you with 100% guarantee that death will come. And yet Jesus has provided a way for us to escape death. We can be resurrected by His power, by His glory. Why? Because He was first resurrected. He has defeated death for us. And that was kind of the passage that we focused on last week, First Thessalonians, or two weeks ago, First Thessalonians chapter 4, as we focused on people who do not have to grieve without hope, but instead that we can grieve as those who do have hope. And so we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I'd like to read this passage with you this morning. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so... Through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be called up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, verse 18, encourage one another with these words. You have hope. You have encouragement because Jesus Christ is coming again. Amen. Now let me just tell you as a young preacher that my job and my responsibility, as you know, is to declare to you the full counsel of God's Word. And so my desire this morning is to share with you how I interpret these passages in 1 Thessalonians. I come to you to say that over the years, my interpretation of this passage has changed. And I will tell you that I cannot guarantee you that over the course of the years following, that it will not change again. 
But my job is to rightly divide the Word of God, share with you my thoughts about this passage, and allow you and encourage you and exhort you to be like the Bereans, to study the, God, the Word of God for yourself and come to your conclusions about the Word of God. Because see, I made a decision a long time ago that I was not going to develop my doctrines and my theology based on other people that I love and care about in my life. I wasn't going to follow the theology of this pastor or this preacher or this theologian or this singer. I wasn't going to follow them because I admire them because I think that what they say is right. Because if you go throughout all of church history, you're going to find different eschatological views from some of the greatest preachers and the most godly men that exist. There is a spectrum. And so if we are just going to follow along the path of what these men say, that we sometimes devote ourselves just to their teaching and their opinion and their interpretation of the Scripture, and we don't study the Word of God for ourselves. And so let me encourage you this morning that as you listen to the way that, that, that I interpret this, this passage, and this, this isn't an un, unfamiliar interpretation, Okay, I'm, I won't be guarantee you will not be predicting dates or times or seasons this morning. Besides this prediction, Jesus is coming again. Amen. But as to how, I feel an obligation to revisit this idea of what we call the rapture. To revisit the rapture. And that's the title of my message this morning. The idea of the rapture is biblical. We believe without apology that Jesus Christ is coming and when He comes, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 clearly tells us that He will rapture the church. That He will take us from the earth and we will go and meet with Him in the air. There is absolutely no dispute about that. You cannot take that passage any other way but the way that it's described. Jesus comes down. He descends to the earth. And the, the Bible says that, that we who are left, we who are alive at the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, Verse 16, but the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The debate is not that Jesus will rapture His church. The debate is what kind of a rapture is that? In the last 100 years, the most popular view of this rapture is called a pre-tribulational rapture. Meaning that the church will be taken out of the world before God spends seven years pouring His wrath and His judgment upon the world. This is called the pre-tribulational rapture. This is the rapture theory that I grew up in, in, in my household and in my church, um, on the movie screens, I remember as a young kid seeing a, uh, a plethora of, of, of emphasis on a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view in the world. 
Matter of fact, I remember as a kid being frightened seeing a, vi- a, a movie uh, that I don't remember exactly the title, but it was about the mark of the beast. And I just remember going, you know, what, what is this going to be like? I mean, it, it, it just, it, it drives our, uh, our, our intention, or our, it, our, it drives our interest. It, 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 it portrays a, um, a sense of, of interest and concern, and even it's spectacular in a sense when you think about it. Matter of fact, I, I think of it uh, to the point that throughout the world in the last 100 years, it has been uh, the subject of secular movies. At one point, it actually, um, biblical eschatology and a pre-tribulational rapture actually topped the charts in the New York bestseller times for the, for the, the most watched and purchased books or read and purchased books on the New York uh, bestseller list. But the problem with that is, is a lot of it was books about the rapture that were fictional. Books like Left Behind and things like that. And so it's topping a secular world's view of saying, give me this spectacular information about the end of the world. And of course we see movies like uh, you know, end of days and, and end of time movies about the destruction of the world that have no biblical basis whatsoever, but it, it catches our attention. Unfortunately, people have taken that theory and that truth and run with it. In the next couple weeks, Dwayne The Rock Johnson introduces an, the next rendition of the world coming to an end, not by uh, uh, another ice age, not by a giant tornado, but this is a giant earthquake that, it, that hits the San Andreas Fault in, in California and literally is felt as the, as the trailer promotes on the east shore. And of course, it's a, an apocalyptic end of the world type passage. So the point is, the people are interested in this world. What's going to happen? We have to go to God's Word and say, what does it teach? All throughout the New Testament, matter of fact, almost every New Testament book teaches us that there will be a second coming of the Lord. Jesus, in almost every gospel, is mentioned to be coming again. Note, note some of these passages with me. I'm not going to read all of them. Matthew chapter 26, or 16, 27. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He's done. Mark 14.62, Luke 12.40, John 14.3. These are all gospel accounts where Jesus is, is referenced as coming again. Acts 1.11, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you, uh, taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Romans 8.19, 1 Corinthians 4.5, Philippians 4.5. 1 Thessalonians, we've read this passage here, as well as 5.2. Titus 2.13 says that we are waiting our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.28, James 5.8, 1 Peter 5.4, 2 Peter 3.18, and 1 John 2.28, and of course the whole book of Revelation. That's almost every New Testament book. 
But can't we take a step back for a second and say that the theme of eschatology has been a thread throughout all of Scripture? Wasn't the Old, wasn't the Old Testament, wasn't it saturated with an expectation of Jesus coming? Some people have phrased that the inaugurated eschatology. The inaugurated eschatology, meaning Jesus had to come first. And so all through the Old Testament, there was a constant thread of awaiting Jesus, or at that time, just the Messiah to come. Matter of fact, in Genesis chapter 3, we see the first taste of this eschatology where we believe, or we read that, that Jesus is going to come and destroy Satan and evil and sin. It's called the Proto-Evangelium, and it's the, the idea that Jesus will come, Genesis chapter 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, she shall bruise your head, and he shall bruise your, uh, his heel. Who is this you? Who is this person, the bruiser of Satan? The bruiser of evil and death? And for many years, they didn't expect and know exactly this idea of a Messiah, but they knew that someone was going to come and, and put to death and put to an end this idea of sin and death in the world. And later on, uh, as progressive revelation begins unfolding and, and, and the idea and the truths become uh, more well known and, 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 and spread and revealed by God, that progression leads to the idea of a Messiah who would come and destroy sin, death, and Satan. And He would also not just come and destroy, but He would come and bless. He would be the hope of redemption. We learn from, uh, from other passages in the Old Testament, like Genesis 49, that He would come from the tribe of Judah, this Messiah, this Deliverer, this Rescuer, that He would serve as the Eternal Prophet, Deuteronomy chapter 18, priest, Psalm 110, and king, Zechariah 9, 9. And then eventually he would uh, perfectly fulfill the role of all fallible humanity in those roles of prophet, priest, and king because none of the prophets, priests, and kings of the Old Testament fulfilled that, that role perfectly. Only Jesus fulfills that role. And so they were expecting this person, this this God to come. Revelation continued to show them, not the book of Revelation, but the revelation of God began to reveal to them that this Messiah would actually be the Son of God that would sit on the throne, the great throne of David, but He would rule on that throne forever. Isaiah 53 tells us that He will become the suffering servant. And ultimately the name is given to this Suffering servant, this God, and His name is Emmanuel, God with us, Isaiah 7, 14. In his book, The Bible in the Future, Anthony Hokum states that we may say that the Old Testament believers in various ways and by means of various figures look for a Redeemer who was to come somewhere in the future or in the last days to redeem His people and to be a light to the Gentiles as well. And so people there in the Old Testament expecting the Messiah, expecting the end of time. But what we begin to see in the Old Testament is that predictions of this Messiah was part of those predictions were fulfilled in Jesus coming the first time in that inaugural 
arrival or that inaugural advent. But then we see some passages like in Joel chapter 2 where there, where there speaks of the last days. And so it, it, in an unknown way to that prophet, like uh, Joel chapter 2, Joel is predicting partially what will be fulfilled in Christ at the first coming and then partially what we predicted at Jesus coming the second time. Let me just read it to you. Joel chapter 2, 28 through 31. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Now that sounds like the end of time, right? But we know that, that, that Peter references that passage to refer to Pentecost. That Jesus comes and we receive the spirit. And the church begins to grow and it begins to expand. But then in verse 30, it says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So now, unbeknownst to Joel, he's, he's speaking on one thing that happens at, after Christ comes, and now he's speaking on something that comes later on in the second coming of Christ. So the idea here is basically that as the minor and major prophets began to prophesy, they were prophesying on uh, the Jesus that comes initially and then the Jesus that comes the second time. The problem is they didn't know that there was a second time. They thought all that was going to come when Jesus came. And so when Jesus is not laying waste to the Romans, and when He's not laying waste to the Gentile world, and He's not escalating and elevating the, Israel, the, the nation of Israel back onto this prominent role in the world, people are like, what's going on? Matter of fact, to the point that Peter rebukes Jesus when Jesus says to him, I'm going to die on the cross... And, and, Jesus, and, and Peter rebukes Jesus for that. And Jesus then re rebukes Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. You think that your understanding and your knowledge is better than mine. And so even the people in Jesus' day did not understand that Jesus is coming, but He's coming in two portions, inaugurally and in the end. And so what do we think about from this truth from this thread that's running throughout the, the Scriptures, what I want us to see, first of all, is that our God is sovereign. Amen. He is sovereign and He is working all these things and fulfilling all these things for His purposes. For our good, but for His purposes. And so God did not start in the New Testament to begin to unravel this plan of Jesus and the, and the end times. He is unraveling it from the beginning before time began. Because He is sovereign and Lord of all things. Lord of all time. Lord of all history. And everything that happens in this world from 9-11 to the fall of, of the temple in, in 70 AD to the birth of Jesus in a, in a humble state, all of history is for His purposes. All of, his, of history points to Jesus. Now, do we always understand how the, the, the nation of Israel becoming a nation back in the uh, in early 1900s, how that happens uh, in relation to, to Revelation? We assume and we try to put this, uh, this you know, right here in the timeline, but we don't always know. And that's where biblical prophecy is difficult. Because we take history and we say, how does this fit into God's big picture? And folks, we always don't always get it right. 
So can we say today that some people in this room have an incorrect eschatology? And you're like, amen, brother, you do, because you do, I can tell where you're going. Some of us are going to be wrong. And on the outset, what I would like for us to do is just to agree to disagree that we may be wrong in some of these issues. You may be wrong and I may be right. And I might be wrong and you may be right. But I'm going to stand to the convictions that I get from studying the Word of God. Have you studied the Word of God and come to your own convictions? That's the question that I'd like for you to ask yourself this morning. So as I, as I uh, that was my introduction, by the way. As I begin to think about this passage, what I want us to do is revisit this idea of the rapture. And I want us to use this passage and a couple other passages and think about these things more deeply. The pre-tribulational rapture comes mainly, not solely, but mainly from this passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the key text to a pre-tribulational rapture. Today, I would like for you to hear three reasons why I have to, from the, the truth of Scripture, look differently than a pre-tribulational rapture. Now, I know what you're thinking. We are Southern Baptists. Amen. And, so, <laughs> and Southern Baptists, Southern Baptists believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Will we get kicked out of the SBC if I believe differently? The answer to that is we might. No. <laughs> the answer to that is if they kick us out of the SBC because we did believe differently than them, then we don't want to be a part of that. Not all of them believe that. I know. I know. So, let's look at these things. Let's have open minds. And if you walk away from this, this day today, eating your lunch at Danvers, believing the same about the rapture that you did before, then God bless you. But I'd like to lay out these reasons. Number one, I believe there is stronger evidence for Jesus and His church after the rapture to return to earth with His saints than to retreat back to heaven with them during the tribulation. Look with me in uh, chapter, five, or chapter 4. What we read is that the Lord descends from heaven. He comes down from heaven. That was promised in Acts chapter 1, verse 11 that He is coming for His saints. He is coming for the church. But the problem that I have with this is that we have taken this passage to assume that once the church meets the Lord in the air, we assume where He goes after that. And so my first, under, my first point this morning is, is that this passage where it says in chapter 4, verse 15, or verse 16, the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Where? We assume that we will always be with the Lord in heaven. Because growing up, that's what Tom and Jerry cartoons taught us. That we will always be in heaven with the Lord. 
But can I ask you for a second, will you consider not thinking I will always be in, the, in heaven with the Lord, but that I'll always be in eternity with the Lord? Because regardless of your eschatology, you will not be in heaven forever with the Lord. You will be with the Lord on a new heaven and a new earth. Now, how we transport ourselves and, and float back and forth in, in between these realms, we don't have truth from Scripture to tell us that. So the, the proper mindset in our, eschatology is, in our eschatology is not always that we will be in, in, in the heavens with the Lord, but that we will be in a new heaven and a new earth with the Lord. This is a completely new spiritual realm, a completely re-changing, a, a reorientation, a reconstruction of this earth that we live in. But Jesus Christ says that He will create a new heaven and a new earth, and that doesn't mean that we dwell in heaven and go, wow, Jesus, you did a great job creating the earth down there that we're never going to visit again. So instead, can we say from this passage that neither point is made by verse 16 of where we will go? All it says is that the church, those who are left, the dead rise, the living rise, and they meet the Lord where? In the air. Now, from that passage and from those, those truths, I don't think there's sufficient evidence to make either point. And my point and the stronger evidence that I mentioned is not from the fact that the church comes to meet the Lord in the air, it's, it's, it's absent there. We can't find it from that passage or from those words. The word caught up and, and rapture has been referenced by, uh, by Greek scholars to say that it's a snatching away. It's an imminency. He is going to come and, and take us to transfer our location from the earth to heaven. And I think again, the snatching away, whether it's violently or, or quickly, doesn't prove that it's secretive. It does not prove that it's secretive. As a matter of fact, the proof that I believe comes that, that the church will meet the Lord in the air and then descend down does not come from the fact that it says we will meet the Lord in the air, but it says that we will meet the Lord in the air. And you're like, what did you just say? It's not in the air, it's the meeting that clarifies for us that we will come back to the earth. Let me teach you a Greek word this morning. Apontasis. It's used in secular writing. It's used um, throughout the Greek literature, secular Greek literature. And it's used three times in the New Testament. Secularly, the truth and the understanding of the, uh, and the meaning of apotenesis, which means and is translated to meet the Lord in the air, the meeting is to be understood as a technical term for when dignitaries and honored people would come into a city and as they were approaching the city, because they were an honored dignitary, the people of the city would go out to meet that dignitary and usher him back into the city. It is a common and indisputable understanding of that term to meet the Lord in the air. As a matter of fact, uh, secularly, 
We read throughout all of Greek literature, F.F. Bruce says that when a dignitary paid an official visit to a city in Hellenistic times, the action of the leading citizens in going out to meet him and escorting him back onto the final stage of his journey was called an apotenesis. So Cicero, describing Julius Caesar's progress through Italy, says... Just imagine what apotenesis he is receiving from the towns, what honors are paid to him. And five years later, he says much about the same of Caesar's adopted son, Octavian. The municipalities are showing the boy remarkable favor, wonderful apotenesis, and encouragement. So what is this? Secularly, Julius Caesar is roaming the country, and as he returns back home, Cicero is recording as a historian that the people go out to meet Julius Caesar and apotenase him back to the city. But you're saying, Nathan, that's, that's Greek literature. That's secular. Give me something from the Bible. Write this verse down and, and turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. This is one instance where apotenesis is mentioned. This is the parable of the ten virgins. These virgins were the bridesmaid waiting on the groom to come. Jesus tells this parable in Matthew chapter 25. And He teaches this parable in a way for us to be ready for the coming of the Lord. That is the theme of this passage. He ends the passage in verse 13. Watch therefore, for you do not know neither the day nor the hour. But look in verse 6 with me. Well, let me just read uh, 1 through 6. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil for them, but the wise took the flask of the oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins rose, trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy some for yourself. And while they were going to buy, uh, to buy the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. So the idea here is, is that the bride's the, the bridesmaids, the ten virgins, are waiting for the bridegroom to come because ceremonial Jewish marriage was the bridegroom would come and he would come and take the bride away. But before he did, he would come into the marriage feast. And so the bridesmaids uh, are waiting on the bridegroom to come. And that same word is used, apotenesis. They go out to meet him and they usher him back in to the marriage ceremony to retrieve his bride. Acts chapter 28 Paul is on his way to Rome to die. He's going to stand before Caesar. He knows his time is coming. Acts chapter 28 tells us that as he approaches Rome, look in verse 15. Let me just start in verse 11. After three months we set sail on a ship that wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead, Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Patoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Atheus and three taverns to meet us. 
And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when they came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. Paul is approaching Rome. These brothers come out to meet him and they all travel back to Rome together. All three of those statements in God's Word describe the same thing. And that, for me, is a sufficient reason to consider that instead of Jesus coming and taking us from the world, Jesus comes in glory and we escort the King of all things back into this earth. We must then ask the question, well, we'll get to that question in a minute. Number two, there is also stronger evidence for a glorious return of the Son of God than a secretive one. If you haven't noticed one yet, you will probably see somebody driving around town with the bumper sticker warning this car may be unmanned in case of a rapture. And throughout time, uh, the, the, the last 100 years at least, as the rapture has been the, one of the prevalent eschatological beliefs, it, it, it naturally became a secretive rapture. It naturally became, as the uh, wonderful fictional books left behind tell us, that there are pilots that will be driving planes and will disappear and the planes will crash and cars will be driven by believers and they will disappear even without their clothes and those cars will crash. A secretive rapture. And the speculation is that Jesus, without warning, will come, will rapture the church, and whatever we're doing will be dropped. We're holding our babies and they will be dropped. Except we believe the babies go to heaven, so they'll go with us. So don't worry. But brothers and sisters, I, I have to, to look clearly at the Scriptures in 1 Thessalonians and say that how can we look at a passage that says that the trumpet of God blows and the voice of the archangel comes and the Lord is descending from heaven, how can we think that anything in there describes secret, a secretive return of Christ? Matter of fact, the trumpet blast of God has always been an audible and public blowing of the trumpet. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 16 and 17, we read, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very long or loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. This is an example in the Old Testament of when God would descend upon the mountain to meet with the people that the trumpet blasts of the angels, and we assume the angels here, the trumpet blasts would, would go forth. So much so that follows that passage in Exodus 19, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Throughout all of the Old Testament, the trumpet blasts of God were never secret. They were never private. They were always to commemorate the beginning of something, a, a festival, of war, all these things. And yet, somehow, we come to this passage in 1 Thessalonians and we say, yeah, that's, not everyone will hear that trumpet blast. 
Matter of fact, some pre-tribulational uh, rapture theorists believe that and, and have, have said that that trumpet sound will actually be like the dog whistle to a dog. Only Christians will hear the blast. And I just think that that's an insinuation. I, I don't see that anywhere in Scripture of a secretive trumpet blast. Instead, I see from the theme of Scripture a glorious return of the Savior. Listen, Jesus already came in humility. He already came and was born in a manger. He already came and was born without the world really knowing that the Lord of all creation had come into the world. He will not come again, in my opinion, in humility. He will come in exaltation. And so we see the voice of the archangel. We see the trumpet of God. I give so much respect and admiration to a man a thousand times smarter than me, a beloved pastor, John MacArthur, who holds a pre-tribulational rapture view. And I, I, I humbly disagree with him. And yet from his commentary in the book of Matthew, which talks about the trumpet of God being blown in Matthew 24, which he, he figures that to be at the end of time, he even says about the trumpet being blown, in ancient Israel, as, many, as in many lands, the trumpet was used to announce important convocations. The sound of the angel's great trumpet will assemble, or signal the assembling of all of God's saints on earth from wherever they might be. So my question is, to my, to the most, in the most humble and respectful way to Brother MacArthur, how can you attribute this trumpet to a loud, audible assembling of all believers in the world, and yet in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you don't believe the same thing? I find that difficult and inconsistent. Matter of fact, if you would notate these verses, you can flip back and forth with me if you'd like. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52, the, vain, the famous and well-known passage on the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52, as well as 1 Thessalonians 4, which we're in, as well as Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse, verses 31. Now, let me just read 1 Corinthians and Matthew 24. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ uh, and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Matthew 24, 31. And we, and he, and he, Jesus, will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. Now, pre-tribulational uh, premillennial views say that these are two events. The first Thessalonians is the rapture of the church, and these other trumpet blasts and these other trumpets uh, and gathering of the elect are after the tribulation. And and my problem with that is is that specifically with First Thessalonians four and Matthew twenty four, they are identical passages. There is Jesus. There are angels, there is a trumpet call, and there is gathering of the believers of Jesus Christ from the earth. I cannot see how those can be distinct, separate events. 
And I think that I, I choose in my own life not to do spiritual gymnastics with the Word of God to try to fit different views that to me just don't make and don't do justice to the text. And as a matter of fact, if 1 Thessalonians 4 and the Olivet Discourse uh, passage in Matthew 24 are the same event, and I would couple all these, th- these three together, then what we will see is that in one event, the glorious and not secret return of Christ follows the tribulation. That He will come once more gathering and then descending fully to the earth as King. This has been the prophetic foreshadowing since the beginning in Genesis 3 where He will crush the head of the serpent. He will destroy evil for good in finality as the King. He also will come at that time as the Redeemer of all His elect. He will come to raise, glorify, and rule with His people. And lastly, because of Matthew 24, we see that not only at that time He gathers His elect, but in Matthew chapter 24, it also says that He comes as the judge of all. That He will cast judgment on the people of the earth who rejected His rule. As a matter of fact, since I hold to this coming as the same event, the Matthew passage follows right after the, 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 the idea of Him gathering His elect. So assuming that these are the same event, then it would make sense in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when we assume here or I assume that the rapture is Jesus coming and descending the earth, then it makes sense chronologically that in chapter 5 verse 1, then Jesus begins to tell them that the, these signs will come, the man of lawlessness, he will come, the Antichrist will come, there will be tribulation, there will be difficulty, and then there will be judgment. And I think the fear with a pre-tribulational view is, Nathan, are you telling me that we will go through the tribulation? And my answer to that is, are we not already going through the tribulation? Can you tell me that churches in the Middle East who have lost their loved ones to ISIS and all these things, would you be able to say to them, listen, you're really not going through the tribulation. We will, go, we will, be, we will escape the tribulation. We will not face the, the tribulation and suffering in this world. And, the, and, and, and I just can't do that. See, the key question is not do we escape the tribulation. The key question is do we escape the wrath of God? And and 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 tells us that Jesus Christ, the Son of Heaven, who was raised from the dead, delivers us from the wrath to come. We will never face the wrath of God when we believe and trust in Jesus Christ. But when we face the tribulation, we will face it with the protection of God. And if we do lose our lives in the tribulation, we will never face the wrath of God. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you something. In the book of Exodus, when this beautiful picture of, of, the, of the Old Testament really being fulfilled in the New Testament, when Israel was in Egypt, did they get rescued from the tribulation of God? 
Did they experience the lice and the frogs and the blood? Did they experience those things? Yes, but with God's protection, and it was wrath that was not poured upon them, it was poured upon the Egyptians. Why would it be any different for us? Is God not our sustainer? Is God not our protector? Have we not been promised that we will go through trial and tribulation? I believe that the North American church finds comfort in a pre-tribulational rapture because we fear going through what God has promised we will go through. And I think that if you go throughout the world and you talk to persecuted Christians, the idea of escaping the tribulation is nonsense to them. Because they deal with it on a daily basis. When they lay their head down at night, the fear of being killed as believers for their faith is always on their mind. Death is going to come. The hope is not in never dying. The hope is dying and knowing that we will rise immediately and be in the presence of Christ. Matter of fact, if you would notate these verses, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8-10. through 10. Paul, in facing what he thought was the end, says to the Corinthian church, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to, ma- to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a per- deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. Brothers and sisters, you have no reason to fear a tribulation because you trust and believe in Jesus Christ who raises people from the dead. That will not be the wrath of God upon you. That is the wrath of God upon this world who has rebelled against Him. But when we think heavenly and we think Godward, we know that there is more of a life to come. Number three, I believe that believers returning with Christ to the earth in glorified bodies to be forever with the Lord, as 1 Thessalonians tells us, is the crux of Paul's argument of hope. Have you ever ever played on a team in sports or followed a team where throughout the season you were like the worst excuse of a team possible like they wrote the bad news bear movies about your team that's how bad you were and you had no hope for any games you had no expectation of winning because you were a worthless team but over the course of that time things changed you became better you grew as a team and you began to win And you always come to that one game, that rival game, where in the past, this team put it on you. I mean, you guys, 
your team was so bad, they didn't care. They were going to run 50 runs up on you. They were going to run 12 touchdowns on you. They didn't care how bad you were. They were going to demoralize you. But now, all of a sudden, everything's different. Now you're good. Now you got skill and you got talent. And so you come to that rival game, that rival game, and you have an expectation and a hope and a confidence that you can put it on them that you can whoop them, that you can show them that things are different. And, and brothers and sisters, I believe that all that Jesus Christ has accomplished in this world, all of the glorious uh, things that He has accomplished in redemption and salvation and in our future glorification, why in the world would we look at a time when Jesus would come back and secretly, fleetingly take us away from an earth that He is ruling over. That He is the King over. This is the time for us to glory in our Redeemer. This is the time for us to, to, to say, praise Jesus for He is King and ruler of all things. We have no reason to fear. We have no reason to be afraid because He has defeated sin and death and when He comes again, it's over. We don't stand as the rulers. We don't stand as the ones that have accomplished anything. But we stand behind the one who did. And that is a cause of celebration, not a cause, in my opinion, of retreat. So what can we take from these passages in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, regardless of where we fall on our eschatology? Maybe you haven't been convinced of anything tonight or this morning and you're just waiting on me to pray. And prayer is good. I need prayer. Can we agree on these points this morning? Number one, Christ is returning in glory at His appointed time. Number two, your loved ones who have died in Christ will be raised bodily in His resurrection, in His return, uniting them with the souls that are already in His presence to a new body. As He comes, they will receive a glorified body. And if you and I are alive at this coming, we also will rise and be with Him receiving our glorification. And that our hope in this world is that death is dead through Jesus and that life in Christ is eternal. And so I pray and I hope that where you stand in these things, that you would believe in these truths and that you would not allow your views on eschatology to divide the church of God. Grant, uh, Grant Osborne, a, a commentator, says, While evangelicals must take a strong stand on doctrines where Scripture is clear, we must learn tolerance regarding issues where God's Word is not clear and differences are based on interpretation. While the balance is undoubtedly difficult to maintain, we must work at it. So long as we continue to labor in small, isolated groups, we will duplicate effort and waste our energy. May we all seek to eliminate judgmental narrowness and unite in one true unity of the Spirit. So let me ask you one question as we're done this morning. 
Regardless of where you stand on the truths of Scripture we affirmed this morning that Jesus is coming, are you ready for His return? Are you ready for His return? Do you have hope in a relationship with Jesus Christ? Not an easygoing relationship that, that where you never face trial, where you never go through uh, times of, of, of lack or wanting, but that God will always be there to provide your needs. He will be there not to provide your wants always, but He will provide you what you need until the time that He takes you home. Are you trusting in a Savior who says you will go through suffering and trial? You will go through punishment, or you will go through suffering, but you will not face the punishment because my son has received that punishment on your behalf. And if you are ready for his return, if you are trusting and you are sure and confident that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, and that one day he will raise you again, are you serving him faithfully? At the height of World War II, Protestant theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer was imprisoned for taking a stand against Hitler. Yet he continued to urge fellow believers to resist Nazi tyranny. A group of Christians believing that Hitler was the Antichrist asked Bonhoeffer, why do you expose yourself to all this danger? Jesus will return any day and all your work and suffering will be, uh, be for nothing. And Bonhoeffer replied, quote, if Jesus returns tomorrow then tomorrow I'll rest for my labor. But today I have work to do. I must continue the struggle until it is finished. End quote. 